for worshiping with us this morning. My name is Rick, and I am uh, uh, the pastor here at our Mount Laurel campus. We're glad that you're here worshiping with us. And I also want to mention that I am also uh, very excited about this, uh, our first new members class. And uh, I hope that uh, you are uh, interested in being a part of that as well. And uh, I'm going to be talking to some of you afterward, if I can, just to let you know. One thing Scott didn't mention is there's a free lunch included. Uh, so uh, even if you're a member, you just want free lunch. Uh, stick around next week, I guess, is what we're saying. So we're in this series that we're calling What Counts, and that, uh, uh, looking at the things that are most important in the church and as followers of Jesus. And one of the things that I've noticed about things that count, things that are important, is that when we are in an inconvenient moment, it's really easy to forget what's really most important. Uh, so uh, I drive a really old car. You guys uh, know the story. My, I have a 2003 Toyota Camry. I love my car. I'm not complaining about my car at all. I love it. It's got 250,000 miles, and I haven't had a car payment in 10 years. I love my car. No one else in my family loves my car, but I love my car. 253,000 miles to be exact. And uh, But whenever my car uh, breaks down, which seems to be often, more often than it used to be 10 years ago at least, uh, I, am, I, I tend to get a little frustrated. So most recently I was noticing that there was something dripping from the bottom and you, that's always a bad sign. And, uh, and so I just continued to drive it until I had a chance to get the appointment and I just kept putting more and more fluid in it and that seemed to work. And while I was driving, I caught myself complaining. I'm like, oh, this is so, so this car is driving me insane. And I'm like, Rick, you have a car. You have a car that has got 253,000 miles on it, and it doesn't owe you a dime. As a matter of fact, you need to put it out of, your, out of its misery soon. There are so many people in the world, even in your own town, who don't have a car, who would be so excited to have a car like the car that you have. And I was reminded of what really counts. Doesn't that happen all the time? It's so easy to get caught up in things and ideas and stuff that seems important, but really it's not nearly as important as we would think that it is. And so we're in this series that we're calling What Counts? And when there are moments when the noise fades away, it's in these moments that we get reminded of what's most important. So when our health is struggling, that's when we realize how important life is. When our family and friends are struggling, that's when we recognize how important they can be. And in the midst of the noise of our world, it's very easy to get distracted by the things that are not important when there are other things that really count. So we've been using Paul's letter that he wrote to Timothy, two letters actually, that he wrote to Timothy, and we're using it as a framework for this series. And there's two important words that I want uh, you to remember when you're looking uh, at these verses, and when you're looking at really any time in the Bible. Uh, last week, I wasn't with you. I was preaching in the Voorhe at the Voorhees campus, and I shared this part. And I'm sure you all listened to the podcast because you didn't want to miss my message. Uh, so, so this is a little bit of a recap because I shared this part with them uh, last week. But the two words are context and background. 
context and background. So, for instance, in this letter to, that Paul wrote to Timothy, this is a personal letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, a friend of his. It's not a letter written to the church. So there are letters in the Bible that are written to churches, So letters that, and Paul wrote those, like letters to the Ephesian church, letters to the Galatian church, and letters to Colossians and Philippians. Those were all letters that were written to the church. And so when that letter was received, someone would be standing up or they would pass the letter around so that everyone in the church could read it. This letter was written by Paul and was written to Timothy. So when we're reading it, it's kind of like we're reading Timothy's mail, all right? Or in today's world, we'd be reading Timothy's email. We got his password to his account, and now we're reading Timothy's email that, he, that was written to him uh, by Paul. And because it's a personal letter, some of the things that Paul writes to Timothy may contradict some of the other things that he's written to in other places in the Bible. And that's because it's likely that Paul was addressing one particular circumstance or a particular time or place, and, and he was, knew that he was writing it to a person who was reading it at that time. Like So for instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, you all had that verse memorized, I'm sure, Paul tells Timothy, hey, drink some wine for your stomachache. I don't follow that advice of drinking wine for a stomachache. But that was advice that Paul was giving to Timothy as a, in a personal letter, right? So that's some of the context, right? The background uh, for this letter is also important. That's the other word, context and background. The background to the letter is that Ephesus was a port city, and Timothy was living in Ephesus. And it was the crown jewel of Asia Minor. It had a population of nearly a quarter million people. And I've talked about Ephesus often and before because Ephesus is mentioned in the Bible quite often, all right? It's, uh, it's mentioned in the book of Acts. It's, like I said, Timothy was living and pastoring in the city of Ephesus. There was a letter called Ephesians, which Paul wrote to the church that was in Ephesus, to the Ephesian people there. And even letters that John wrote were also written to, uh, to the church in Ephesus. It was a hub of of, uh, of importance in the first century. Uh, the residents of Ephesus in this city had incredible luxuries. They had running water in the first century. They had indoor toilets. They had streets that were paved in, in solid marble. They had a gymnasium. They had their own plan of fitness, people. You hear what I'm saying? This, is, this place was moving. This place was, 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 was cutting edge in their time. They had a two-story hospital. They even had a theater that could seat approximately 25,000 people. The city of Ephesus was a great place to live. It was a good place to live economically and socially. And so life in Ephesus was good. People living in Ephesus in the first century could easily understand what it's like for us in the 21st century, in 21st century suburbia. They would, they would see some of the, they would understand the kind of attitudes and heart that we have living in the world that we live, we live in. Now, at the heart of the city, at the heart of this uh, uh, of, of Ephesus, there was a worship that took place to a god named Artemis. And Artemis was the ancient fertility god. Now, the Ephesians had built this enormous temple to Artemis. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the world in the first century. It was massive. It was, it was, it was, uh, it's bigger than that. All right, but that, that's just an artist's picture of that, right? And there were hundreds, and that's Artemis, by the way, too, on that side, which uh, she was considered a beauty back in the day. <laughs> hundreds of eunuch priests, virgin priestess, and religious prostitutes would serve at her temple daily. And because she was a fertility goddess, 
Worship rituals were often quite erotic. She was the most worshipped deity in Asia and perhaps the world during Paul's time. And Ephesus was considered the world headquarters or the center of Artemis worship. And so people from far and wide would travel to Ephesus to worship Artemis. Because if you wanted children, the goddess of worship was the one who provided, so you worshipped Artemis. If you wanted your crops to succeed, you would pray to Artemis because Artemis would make sure that your crops would flourish and grow. Artemis was all. Artemis was believed to be powerful, and Artemis was believed to be protective of her temple. And it, it was also believed that the reason Ephesus had grown so mightily and had so many great things available to its people is because of Artemis. And some of that actually was true because Artemis was blessing the local Ephesian economy. Because people from all over the world would worship and deposit money there in Ephesus at the temple, the Ephesian banks grew incredibly quickly and they took that money and they loaned it out at a high rate of interest. So the bank in Ephesus became the largest bank in the world at that time. And the Ephesians became extremely wealthy because of the Artemis worship that took place in that city. And so the Ephesian people were very protective of their goddess, who had made them successful and powerful and rich. And so all of this context and this background is important as we look at these story or the, these letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. You can even read about uh, Artemis and Artemis worship and get kind of a sense of the the uh, protection that the people have uh, over Artemis. If you read Acts chapter 19, there's a story of Paul being in, in Ephesus, and there's a story about some uh, silversmiths who are angry with Paul because the Christians who used to be Artemis worshippers are now Jesus worshipers, and because they've changed their religious focus from Artemis to Jesus, they're no longer purchasing Artemis idols, and so the silversmiths are losing money. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 19, and a riot breaks out in the city because of Artemis. And so up on the screen, Paul writes this to his young friend Timothy. He says, but you, Timothy are a man of God. So run from all these evil things. And we're going to talk about those evil things in just a minute. So run from all these evil things. And then Paul says, pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. He then says, fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. A couple observations is that in uh, Paul first note, calls Timothy a man of God in the, uh, that's the New Living Translation. It's actually the second version of the New Living Translation. I have in my possession a copy of the New Living Translation first edition, which I know isn't really that exciting to most of you, but to me, that was a big deal uh, because I love the New Living Translation of the Bible. And in that translation, in the first edition, they say, Timothy, it says, Timothy, you belong to God. 
You belong to God, Timothy. You're a man of God. And in the previous 10 verses, Paul reminds Timothy of his current cultural setting. Timothy, you live in Ephesus, and and if you read those verses, you'll see that Paul talks about that there are people who are teaching falsely. It is a different value system, Timothy, that is being measured and counted. Artemis worship is the world headquarters, in case Timothy forgot where he was living. There's jealousy, there's fighting, there's slander, there is evil suspicions. There's Religion has become a way to get rich through Artemis worship. There's corruption, there's deceit, there's greed, there's measuring success by counting dollars and craving money, and Ephesus and its citizens have become successful. And Paul tells Timothy, this ain't you. You're a man of God. You belong to God. Timothy, you are defined by something else. You may be living in Ephesus but you are a citizen of heaven. There is something else that counts, Timothy. And Timothy chooses to, or Paul chooses to remind Timothy that you are a man of God. You belong to Jesus. That really resounds for me because I have to share. I, I turned 55 this week, last week. Yeah, yeah 55, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a big deal, right? So here's so so Kelly. Uh, it was Friday. I was off. Kelly was my wife was going to school and she kissed me goodbye. She said happy birthday and then she said enjoy the tours of the communities, uh, because I have always teased that as soon as I hit 55, I'm going to start looking at those 55 and over places, because I'm looking forward to that day. She says she's not joining me there, because uh, she's younger than me, much younger than me, and she doesn't want to be there with me. But I keep telling her it's it's great opportunity. So so uh, I didn't tour those. Uh, but uh, but I became a Christian and started following Jesus when I was about 17 years old. Uh, about, I was 17 years old. And I have this recurring struggle that is still part of who I am, and it creeps in every once in a while. It often creeps in. I'm going to be very vulnerable with you. It creeps in often on Sunday mornings. Uh, I get up and uh, at 6, 6 o'clock in the, or 5 o'clock in the morning. I'm in the office at 6 o'clock, and I pray at 6 o'clock till about 6.15, 6.20 or so. That's how I kind of waking up and, and uh, getting uh, prepared, and I have the message out. I'm praying over the words that are written there at that time, and there's, if I'm not careful, there's a fleeting thought that comes into my brain. Who are you to do this? Do you know where you've been? Do you know what you've done? Do you know what kind of person you used to be? You're inadequate for the task. You're not worthy. And at 55, now 30 years after, can't do the math, more than 30 years of following Jesus, how many? 38, thanks for the math help there. Uh, For over 30 years, I have struggled to remove that from my mind. It's still always there, just a little bit. I have friends who pray for me on Sunday morning because they know that that's a challenge for me, to be reminded of that. Paul tells Timothy, you are a man of God. You belong to Jesus. Your past, if you allow it, will haunt you. Paul is reminding Timothy that there's no need to remember your past. 
you have a new life in Jesus. You are, we are men and women of God, and we belong to Jesus. We've been rescued, we've been forgiven, we have this new life, we're adopted into this new life in Christ. We sang, all my life you have been faithful. And so our value is not measured in financial gain or any other ways on earth that would be counted, but by putting our, 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 our but, but by remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in our lives, you and I are men and women of God. We belong to Jesus. Amen? All right. So Timothy goes on, or Paul goes on, and he says to Timothy, he uses these interesting action words. He says, he says uh, run, pursue, fight, hold tightly. Actually, the word cling is used there. Uh, all these action words, not a passive faith, not a sitting around and waiting for God faith. Our lives count for something. Our faith is an active faith. It's a participatory faith. It's not a Sunday-only faith. It's not just at church kind of faith. Our faith is an at-home faith and at-work faith and at-school faith. It's a 24-7, 365 kind of faith. It, it's a faith that says, how, what does it mean for me to follow Jesus while I'm teaching at school? What does it mean to follow Jesus while I'm managing at work? What does it mean to follow Jesus while I'm on a sales call? What does it mean to follow Jesus in every place I'm at. That's what Paul's talking about here. This active faith of running and pursuing and fighting and holding tightly. Uh, Paul often does this too. He often uh, will say, stop doing one thing and start doing another. You know, so he, said, he says, run, he tells Timothy, run from these things of Ephesus and, and, and then instead pursue and, and, and fight and hold tightly or cling to. And so often Paul does that. He, he puts up these, he says, stop doing this and start doing this instead. It's as if Paul is saying, what's at the center of your life? What is at the center of your life? How we live counts. It's up to us to be what we can be and to be the kind of living and breathing example of Jesus in our world. And then I notice that Paul mentions words like righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. Instead of jealousy and fighting, instead of slander and suspicious attitudes, instead of religious financial gain, instead of corruption, instead of deceit, he says, Pursue righteousness, Timothy. A right relationship with God and humanity. What does pursuit of right relationship between God and people look like for you? What does it mean in your context to love God and to love people? I know it's likely that as I said that, you were thinking, but you don't know the person I know at work. They are incredibly difficult to love. I know that for some of you, as I talked about that and said, love God and love people, and it's about righteousness, righteousness and godliness and faithfulness and, and perseverance and gentleness, that you said, yeah, if I do that, I'll be walked all over like a doormat at work you got to get yours or someone else will get it. What does it look like to love God and love people in your context? 
doing what we know is right, even when the world is counting differently. This is a most important message in 2020. I don't have to remind you that the political arena is heating up and it is going to get white hot in the coming months. And attitudes of anger and bitterness and tox, toxic words are used and will continue to be used. And the ads are just beginning. There is an equally heated church concerns. The global church is fracturing and splintering while the local church struggles to keep moving forward. And I would suggest that in 2021, this time next year, our world is going to look differently both globally and locally as we continue to trend toward being polarized and separated. So I want to offer you three observations about where the world, I think, see where the world is going and how we can respond to that world. The first one is uh, truth is not personal. In our culture, truth is no longer objective. It's become personal. It's not even subjective. It's become personal. So if we don't like something, great. Just tell everyone it never happened. Explain that it doesn't exist. Spin your version of the story long enough until you've constructed your own personal universe of what's real and what's not. Truth has become personal. Don't like what you hear or see? You can choose on social media to follow only people who do what you do and say what you say. You can listen to and read all from your own personal preferences. Amazon, Netflix will give you shows that only you like to watch because truth is personal. It's become all about you. You get to determine what you see, hear, think, and believe. But you and I, we belong to God. Don't be tempted. Run from these things and choose to anchor yourself in God's truth. God's truth through Jesus. Resist the temptation to define your own reality. Don't try to spin it. Don't try to explain it away. Don't try to pretend it didn't happen. Instead, as Paul's recommendation to Timothy, run from it, pursue Jesus, and seize your faith. Seek after righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. And that's how we fight back and push back against the idea that truth is personal. There's this tribalism that's emerging in our culture that I can only hang out with people who look like me, sound like me, and agree with me. And I will be threatened by those who think or look different than me. And so the second one I would suggest is civility matters. Love people who oppose you. I mean, really, why love your neighbor when you can attack him? 
don't get caught up in this vortex of personal opinions over everyone else's. So if your version of the gospel doesn't include loving your opponents, it's not the gospel of Jesus. And at the risk of sounding political, God is not a Republican, a Democrat, a conservative, a liberal, or a socialist. God is not a traditionalist or a progressive. He's not a Methodist or a Baptist. God transcends all of our categories, however important they might be to us. Jesus said our faith would not be characterized by how deeply we love our friends. It would be characterized by how deeply we love our enemies. So have you hung out with any enemies lately? Not to argue, but to listen and to love. Because you and I belong to God. And we should pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and gentleness, especially with those who look and think differently. And so the third has a connection to the first, but it's that accountability and confession are our most important disciplines. See, if I can determine my own personal truth, then that means I'm not accountable to take responsibility. I'm not accountable to anyone. Not to you, not to others, not even to God, because it's my personal truth. And so if something doesn't go my way, I don't need to take any responsibility. I can just blame someone else or hold other people accountable. And I don't have to hold other people accountable, and they don't have to hold me accountable as well. But as Christ followers, reality is not what we want it to be. You aren't, and we aren't. What we want to be, we confess, we address. And while we may not be the whole problem, we have to admit that we are part of it. And on the other side of confession, and on the other side of accountability, we find forgiveness. Because we believe that truth and love are fused together And that is hope. And when Jesus is truly present and truly working in my life, truth and love are never separated. Men and women, we belong to God. And we need to pursue Jesus and we need to seize our faith and we need to run after righteousness and godliness and faith and love and cling to perseverance and gentleness. I would suggest a most important message in the 21st century. We live in this isolated and polarized world. It's this world of extremes, and it's going to become greater in the year ahead. 
There's this current mistrust in the church, and you've heard me talk about this before, and I believe we've done our, uh, at, at our best and attempt to, to change this attitude within the church, but it still exists for, for the majority of people who do not go to church. They still believe the church is hypocritical, and we are. They believe the church is homophobic, and we are. They believe the church is judgmental, and we are. They believe that we're too political, and we are. And they believe that we become irrelevant, and we're a fairy tale at best, and we are. And the reason I say that we are is because perception is reality. And if that's what they perceive the church to be, it's our job to change that perception so that those people who are not part of the church, capital C Church, any church, will be inspired to say, there's someone at my workplace who acts and lives differently, and I can't figure it out. There's just something different about them. And I believe that difference is their faith. And I don't know what that faith is. And maybe I'll never go to their church. But what if I were to try a church? Because I stopped believing that it was hypocritical and homophobic and judgmental and too political and irrelevant. What if it, had a, what if it could make a difference in my life? What if the difference that I see in that person's life could be made in my life? I would argue that's what Paul is challenging us through his letter to Timothy. Up on the screen is the message version of this, and I want you to hear it from, it just writes like a letter. It's so well written. But you, Timothy, man of God, run from your life from all of this. All those things, that, that the trappings, the things that don't count, run from this. Pursue a righteous life. A life of wonder and faith and love, and steadiness, and courtesy. Run hard and fast in the faith. Seize the eternal life. How we live counts. Seize the eternal life, the life you were called to, the life you so fervently embraced in the presence of so many witnesses. Of all the people that are living in this world, we should be the ones with the most hope. Because our hope comes from outside any system. It comes from outside any person. It comes because of Jesus. And we can choose to cling to Jesus and share this hope of Jesus with the world. In a world that's becoming more and more cynical by the minute, uh, hope is one of the most radical things that we can do. It is the ultimate antidote to cynicism. And our faith and relationship with Jesus is the antidote to this post-truth and fractured culture that we're a part of. I would challenge you that these are strong and powerful walking orders for us. That while we gather here on Sunday mornings and it's, it's fun to be together, our work, our work begins when we walk out those doors. That our living faith, whether we're at Chick, uh, Chick Place Close today, uh, whether we're, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't say, uh, wherever we may go for lunch today, <laughs> Wherever you may find yourself this evening, whatever Monday morning holds for you, whether you're off like Scott or are working, 
that the places that you move in and out of, that you have opportunity to bring your faith and bring Jesus into those moments and those places. And the world will notice the difference. And we have opportunity to change the world around us. Because your life matters. And how we live counts. Will you stand with me for closing prayer? And so God, I thank you for your truth shared with us in this letter that was written to Timothy centuries ago. And I pray, God, that we would take these ideas and these thoughts and these challenges, and God, we would apply them to our lives, that we would know that we are men and women who belong to Jesus. And God, we are grateful for the life change that you've brought into our lives the forgiveness that we've experienced and the, the, the eternal life we get to live now. And God, I pray that as we move in and out of the places that we move in and out of at the grocery store line and the work break room and the restaurants, the homes, God, that we would seize our faith that we would cling to you, that we would pursue righteousness and that we would pursue uh, 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 love and peace and gentleness and that those values and those actions would speak volumes to a world that is fractured and broken and separated and filled with tribalism and polarization. And that, God, that we would have faith to believe that hope can make a difference. That we would be foolish in our faith enough to believe that our lives matter and count. And that there are men and women who are watching how we live and they are looking for that kind of faith in their lives as well. And God, that's our challenge. I pray, God, that we would take it wholeheartedly, that we would strive to be the men and women that you've called us to be, living in this world that is desperate to know of Jesus. And we thank you, God, for these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. And now as you go, I pray that you go knowing that there's a God that loves you with his whole heart, that he loves you enough that he would rather die than live without you, that he would choose to leave his throne in heaven so that he could reign in our hearts and our lives forever, that that's the kind of love that God has for each and every one of us. And that as you leave these doors, I pray that you would know that there's a world out there that is desperate to know of that exact same love. Amen. Have a great day.